Hey there, thanks for listening. Just before we jump in, a quick spoiler alert that we discussed this week's House of the Dragon, episode two. So if you are not caught up, please head over to Binge and watch. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Here's a news flash. Surprise, surprise. Well, look at you. The whole world is watching for my next move. Oh my God. Times have changed. There are no rules. You're gonna love it. Hi, and welcome to Skip Intro, the podcast from Binge, all about the world's best television. Each week, we're here to discuss the biggest new shows on Binge. But this week, and for the next nine weeks, we're talking about House of the Dragon. I'm John Boehm. I'm normally joined by Ali Herbert Burns, but unfortunately, she is trapped in the skies somewhere across Australia. So we are thrilled to have with us Sam Clench from news.com.au, who is a political reporter, but also moonlights as the official Game of Thrones House of the Dragon recapper. Sam, thank you so much for joining us this week. The official nerd is probably the proper title, I would say. You say she's trapped in the air. Is she on Dragonback? Yes, yes. <laughs> so we are in the second week of House of the Dragon. Sam, you've watched all of Game of Thrones. You've professionally recapped it. We're back in Westeros three years after the finale of Game of Thrones. Before we jump into episode two... How are you feeling about being back in the world? Oh, I really like being back in this world. Let me tell you, the setting uh, feels wonderfully familiar with House of the Dragon. For anyone who was a fan of Thrones, this is very much the same world, but it's, you know, I would say it's the differences between Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon that I find most interesting, right? If we're going to talk about our early impressions of this show, I think the way it differs from Thrones is intriguing, right? The latest seasons of Thrones the last two in particular, they were very fast paced and they were full of spectacular set pieces, which is all good in its own right. But it became less and less about the political intrigue that had really defined the show in its early run and more about the action and wrapping up all the various character arcs in mostly satisfying ways. House of the Dragon feels much slower paced. It feels like a return to what Thrones was early in its run, which is about the political maneuvering and the tensions between the characters. In my opinion, those were the best elements of Thrones rather than all the fantasy stuff. And they fell a bit by the wayside as the show progressed. I also think there's a really interesting tonal difference between Thrones and House of the Dragon. There's less humor, there's less witty dialogue. I mean, you think of Tyrion and anyone else in a scene, you think of Arya and the Hound, those sorts of exchanges, which were always funny and witty, that kind of thing, always trying to crack jokes. That's kind of missing from House of the Dragon, which I don't think is necessarily a negative thing because the scope is smaller. Game of Thrones with this, was this continent-spanning epic House of the Dragon is fundamentally more intimate, right? It's a family drama. It's a tragedy. There are times when it, it almost feels as though it's a play that you're watching with the king as the central figure of the first act. So while I can see why some Game of Thrones fans might miss some of the more humorous elements from that series, I really, really like the fact that the showrunners here have picked a tone and they've committed to it, right? It feels like a TV show that's very self-confident where everyone knows what the vision is and is committed to realizing it on screen. I just love that stuff. We talked about last week when we were talking about the first episode and for those who are coming into the podcast fresh, I'm a bit of a Game of Thrones sort of novice. I've seen some of it, not all of it, but I'm coming into House of the Dragon sort of fresh without too much sort of intimate um, knowledge of Game, Game of Thrones. And from my experience with Game of Thrones and my experience with House of the Dragon, House of the Dragon just feels a lot more focused. Um, it feels like 
you kind of know what's happening much quicker and you kind of can see not where it's going, but where they're kind of trying to take it. Um, a lot of the reviews I've seen, and you kind of sp spoke on this, um, use the phrase palace intrigue, which is not a term I use a, a lot, but a, lo a lot of reviews are picking up on. Um, and yeah, it just, it tonally and thematically feels so much clearer with what they're doing. You will remember with Game of Thrones, the famous intro sequence, right? Where you zoom out to the map and you see all the locations that are being explored in that particular episode. House of the Dragon is much more intimate. It's like a lot of what's happening is just in one place, in King's Landing. It's about which room it's happening in rather than which part of the world. Uh, and that does certainly help with its focus. All the characters are together from the beginning. Their relationships are developing from the beginning. We're not waiting six seasons for a Jon Snow and a Daenerys Targaryen to finally meet. And I think in the long run, that will be to this show's benefit. Yeah, and that's not to say there isn't spectacle. Episode two, which has just come out on binge, not only does the episode open with a fairly graphic grab-based scene, but there's also some pretty spectacular dragon work, dragon flight happening in this episode as well. There's a really wonderful extended scene sort of towards the end of the episode, which is where you see a confrontation between, between a number of major characters. You have Daemon Targaryen played by Matt Smith, He's nicked a dragon egg, not meant to do that, naughty boy. And you have Otto Hightower, the Hand of the King, coming to retrieve it. And there's this wonderful shot of the bridge in front of Dragonstone, which is all misty because it's a volcanic island. And there's like a sunset in the background. And the cinematography is mm, chef's kiss. Uh, and then, you, of course, you have dragons come in because House of the Dragon sort of in the title. And the whole scene, I would say, is just a masterclass in cinematography and in acting, the performances are immaculate. Uh, and in writing, it's the sort of scene that makes this show so special. And it's the kind of scene where you start to realise where that $20 million uh, an episode budget is going. <laughs> yeah. Because for all the scenes that take place just around tables or on balconies, they then certainly go all out for some of these uh, dragon and sort of conflict scenes. Um, in terms of sort of character development from episode one, we obviously have Rhaenyra, uh, played by Australia's own Millie Alcock, who in the first episode is sort of declared the new heir. And in episode two, which is a, seems like it's a couple of months after the first episode, there's a bit of grief that's taken place, blah, blah, blah. Um, you can kind of see her starting to sort of like flex her future queen muscle a little bit. Like she's speaking up for herself. She's not necessarily doing everything her dad tells her to do, but she has a bit of a conflict with the queen who never was. You can definitely see a lot of things happening in this episode. Yeah. The thing I would ask our dear listeners is to pay real, real close attention to the relationship between Rhaenyra and her childhood friend, Alicent Hightower. Do not sleep on the dynamic between these two girls because there's a lot of subtlety to their relationship which you can see in this episode, there are things you need to watch really closely to pick up on. And that relationship is at the absolute heart of this season of television. It is really important to keep track of. In terms of um, Rhaenyra not uh, necessarily obeying all of her father's commands, she defies them pretty openly when she goes to Dragonstone to retrieve that stolen egg. And it tells us something about both her and her father, right? She's quite headstrong. She's got some courage and she wants to prove herself. She goes off and she does prove herself. It also tells us that Viserys is, um, he's a temperamentally cautious person. His first instinct when he learns that she's left without his permission is you could have been killed. And we actually see earlier in the episode, he himself in a fit of 
very temporary rage wants to go himself to retrieve the egg, but he's very quickly talked down from it by Otto Hightower. Within he's, seconds. So there's, within there's, seconds. Yeah, it's a he's, real he's easy like, talk I, down. He's, he's so determined. I'm going to Dragonstone. I'm getting it back. And then Otto's like, mm, it sounds like it might be a bit too dangerous for you, Your Grace. And then he's like, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. um, so Viserys is showing more and more that he's, he's not a very decisive character. Um, and he's risk averse and this doesn't necessarily make him a bad person, but it might make him a less than ideal monarch. Yeah. And speaking of people trying to become the monarch, um, uh, we once again have Damon, AKA Matt Smith, AKA Dr. Who, Prince Philip. I, I keep having to remind myself I'm not watching the crown. He's just like scene by scene kind of getting more and more evil. He's an enigmatic character is how I would put it. I am, I'm also recovering still from having seen Doctor Who's butt in episode one. Wasn't expecting that when I turned it on. Um, Damon is, how should I put this? He's the most interesting character in this lineup. Some listeners might not be aware. This is a show that's based on existing source material. There is a book that is essentially being adapted. So if you've read the book, you have a fairly good idea of which character is interesting, which character isn't. Damon is the most interesting character in the whole thing because he contains multitudes. He has got some truly evil acts in him and he's also got some affection for his family. He's got some real redeeming qualities. It's very Game of Thrones. I think in, in this episode, we're still unclear in what his motives are. What's he trying to do? The vibe I get from him is that he's just, he's a chaotic person and he wants attention from his brother, the king. And I'm not sure whether he's the sort of person who's scheming to try and advance his position, whether he's just trying to create chaos for the sake of it, to amuse himself. And that's what makes his performance, Matt Smith's performance in particular, so interesting. Yeah, and his um, relationship with Rhaenyra is also interesting because episode one seemed like they were kind of quite close and they were confidants and, you know, there was sort of a um, almost sibling-like camaraderie. But then by the end of this episode two, you can see that the, the scheming is away and that it's all up for grabs. To be clear, uh, <laughs> their real relationship is they are uncle and niece. Yes. Which, as we know with the Targaryens, is not uh, necessarily a bar to sexual tension, which I think we felt in episode one. And I think there was a hint of it here as well, actually, in that scene on the bridge where there's a moment where Rhaenyra says, well, go on then, kill me. Mm. I, I'm the reason you're no longer the heir. Eliminate the reason. Go on and do it. And his reaction is to have a little smile on his face and to look at her with something that, I mean, it's, it's open to interpretation, but I read it as almost admiration for the guts that she was showing. Yeah. I, just, I still think there's this interesting tension between them, which would be very creepy if this were in a world other than Westeros. But completely normal in Westeros. <laughs> as, as I'm increasingly learning. Yes. <laughs> Before we wrap up, one character we've not discussed, Sir Kristen Cole, the very handsome knight. So <laughs> I'm still not sure exactly where he's sort of going to land in all of this. It looks like he's going to sort of become Viserys' bodyguard maybe, but yeah, I'm still figuring out his, his role in all of this because he's uh, not blood related to any of these people. Yeah, he's pretty unique in this setting insofar as most of the characters are highborn. They are either lords or kings or princesses or the daughters or sons of lords. Kristen Cole is someone who's come up from nowhere. He is he was no one before he was raised to the King's Guard in this episode by Rhaenyra. I think you are very wise to reserve judgment 
in terms of how he lands. There are a lot of characters in this show who might shift allegiances here and there throughout. It's unclear where Kristen Cole's allegiances lie yet or what his motives are. We should approach most of these characters with a healthy degree of skepticism. So I asked our guests last week this this question about episode one. So I'll ask you about episode two. This episode's just gone out on binge. So um, people are burning their way through it. What do you think is going to be the most sort of discussed moment of this episode? What do you think is going to get the headlines and the tweets and the TikToks? Look, if the horrors of childbirth were the main talking point from episode one, which they were, I think the equivalent here is the marriage customs of Westeros, which, yes. uh, much like the marriage customs in our real human history, are very creepy. The context here is that Viserys is king, right? His wife died in the premiere. And because he is king, he's obligated to remarry and to continue producing children because that makes his line more secure. You know, if he has more kids, less likely that the royal line is going to die out. So much of this episode concerns Viserys' search for a second wife. And let's just say that the identities of the contenders are a little unsettling, which is to say on the young side. So it further feeds into the themes of the series, or one of the themes of the series, which is how women are treated in this very patriarchal version of society. So some of this cast will be known to audiences Matt Smith, for example. Some of them will be known to Australian audiences, perhaps, Millie Orcock, but otherwise a sort of great diverse cast. Uh, Who do you think are sort of the the breakouts, stars, characters that are coming out of season one of Hot D? Well, obviously everyone is very taken with Matt Smith as Damon, Uh, rightly so. We've spoken about that already. But if we're talking about a breakout star, i.e. someone unexpected, this might sound like a weird answer, but I actually think it's Paddy Considine as King Viserys. Uh, A few listeners might be thinking to themselves, of course he's interesting, he's the king. But the truth is that Viserys in the source material is a pretty dull, uninteresting character. This is something that George R. R. Martin, the author himself, has actually admitted to in public. He said, look, I didn't get much inspiration when I was writing this character. I don't think he's very interesting. That has changed dramatically in the show. Paddy Mm. is bringing a great deal of depth and humanity to Viserys as a character. And I can tell you that continues in the coming episodes. He's like, he's like the central figure almost in a Shakespearean play, like a tragedy. Uh, and it's fascinating to watch. I, I just think we expected Damon to be interesting. We expected Alicent and Rhaenyra to have their interesting moments. Viserys is not someone that we expected to be such a standout. So I think Paddy Considine has done a really good job with him. Nice. So episode two is streaming for you right now on Binge. Uh, House of the Dragon is being released weekly, um, which is a new concept for some people, going out Mondays at at 11 a.m. And every episode of Game of Thrones is also streaming for you right now on Binge if you'd like to return to that series. The burden of this knowledge. It is larger than the throne. Is larger than you. Directed by Ethan Hawke and executive produced by Martin Scorsese, The Last Movie Stars is a new HBO docuseries tracing the decades-long love story of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Right before the pandemic started, one of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's kids approached me to direct a documentary about Paul and Joanne. 
Oh. Had begun working on a memoir. They did over 100 interviews. He said to him, tell the truth. Stuff they would never say if they weren't with friends. What happened to these tapes? He poured gasoline on them and lit them on fire. Wow. Except they had had them all transcribed. I'm trying to turn it into kind of like a play with voices. A community looking back. Sam, we're dropping all six episodes of this um, on September 1st on Binge. So depending when you're listening, it may already be streaming for you. How familiar are you with uh, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's life? Not at all familiar. I'll tell okay. you, I am familiar with Ethan Hawke as a director, and that's pretty much enough of a sellable point for me already. Uh, I've also heard of that guy called Martin Scorsese. He's yep. a familiar name, but you will need to tell me the background of this show, please. So I, Paul Newman, golden age of Hollywood star, that's kind of been, you know, going into this documentary, that was about as much as I knew about him. I knew, knew he was in a bunch of iconic films. What I did not know about him was his decades-long marriage to equally acclaimed actor Joanne Woodward. And what is so interesting about this documentary, which comes to us from HBO and CNN, it was a bit of a co-production, um, is that over the decades of their relationship, they documented a lot of their lives in what they thought might one day become a memoir, which you'd expect for some very well-known actors to do. However, in, I guess, a fit of rage at some point, Paul Newman burnt all of the memoir that they'd been working on for decades. So we thought this was all lost to history. And then what has happened is that the daughter of Paul Newman found tapes, found some recordings that someone had taken of the um, notes before they were destroyed. So it was kind of this like magic insight into Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's life. So you've got this sort of source material that we thought was lost to history. It's not Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward on the tapes. It's someone else who's recorded it. But you've got access into this insight into this, you know, Hollywood power couple, which sort of alludes to the title, The Last Movie Stars. So... Why is Ethan Hawke involved, you asked? So I would like to know. Yes. So as I said, Paul Newman's uh, daughter sort of approached Ethan Hawke with all, like, all this great material and said, let's make a documentary about it. Ethan Hawke, being the well-connected man that he is, has pulled in all his famous friends to re-record all these moments from the, from what would have been the memoir. So you've got George Clooney portraying um, Paul Newman, you've got Laura Linney playing Joanne Woodward, and then like Mark Ruffalo and Ewan McGregor and Sam Rockwell and Sally Field and all these other people lending their voices to what would have been this memoir. So it was produced during lockdown. So lots of archival footage, lots of um, scenes from all the the great productions they were in and all the great footage that exists of them. But then it's intercut with this sort of really intimate, almost like radio drama that's brought these really intimate moments of their life to life by George Clooney and Laura Linney and all these great people. So yeah, it's a relatively traditional documentary in the sort of archive footage sense of it. But what's not a very traditional documentary format is these actors on Zoom in lockdown sort of recreating all these great moments of these two iconic stars' life. So, yeah, it's fascinating. If you have any interest in sort of old Hollywood or Paul Newman or just movies in general, because, like I said, I kind of went in vaguely knowing who Paul Newman was and knowing that he made some salad dressing, by the end of this you're just, like, captivated by this love story, their career spanned the heights of Hollywood through to television and streaming and everything. So... Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really well done. It's six six episodes, and it's, I think it's brilliantly done. I think it's always a good measuring stick when you have someone who really had no knowledge of the material going in. Yeah. About this sort of thing. Um, so the fact that you were so sucked into it, 
I would say is a very good sign. And, you know, also all-star cast that never hurts. It's like, it's like not a novelty that they've got these actors because it, it really does bring so much to it, having a George Clooney and a Sally Field bringing these words to life. So, yeah, the entire um, six-part uh, docuseries, The Last Movie Stars, is uh, streaming on Binge from September 1st. My meeting with Joanne gave birth to a sexual being. I am simply a creature of her invention. When they first married, she just won the Oscar. She's the star. But we're just beautiful people with beautiful problems. And then the trajectory just changed. Beautiful problems, God knows we Nobody understands anybody else's relationships. Only the two people who are involved know what binds that relationship together. We gotta walk through fire. Sam? This is the point in the episode where Ali and I usually give our dinner party recommendations, which is something from the binge library that might not be brand new or that we might not have had a chance to talk about, uh, that we just want to tell people how much we love. What would you like to talk about in the binge library? Well, mine is not a particularly original thought, but I do think it's quite relevant for this episode because I want to tell you about succession. Undoubtedly, go heard, on. undoubtedly you've heard of succession. You know, yes. it's all the bloody awards, hasn't it? Um, the reason I'm bringing it up is because we've been talking about House of the Dragon and what succession is, if you haven't seen it, it's essentially House of the Dragon set in modern times. It's a succession crisis involving a modern family. So if you have found yourself dipping into House of the Dragon and enjoying it and thinking, hmm, I wish there was something else like this that I could watch. You don't have to go all the way to Game of Thrones and it's eight seasons. There are three wonderful award-winning seasons of succession right there waiting for you. If you haven't checked it out yet, first of all, sort yourself out. Second of all, go and watch succession. You will binge it in like a week. You will love every minute of it. You cannot go wrong with succession. You mentioned in our House of the Dragon chat that House of the Dragon um, doesn't have some of the humour that is in Game of Thrones. When I try to sell people on succession, one of the first things I sell them on is just how funny it is. Like I think people might think based on the poster or whatever, oh, it's like this businessy show. It is like funny. It is so funny. So funny. The performances are comedic from pretty much every actor. And, yeah, when you do look at the poster, it's a bunch of people in suits. It looks very business-like, looks very stodgy perhaps. It's not that. It is so scandalous. It is so unerringly funny every episode. And the dialogue, I was talking about witty dialogue earlier, so much of it, so much. Yeah. Besides being hilarious, also has like House of the Dragon level stakes. Like there's a couple of kings and queens in the world still these days, but the people running the world these days are billionaires. Um, so succession is still incredibly high stakes because it is looking at this media mogul's family and who's going to eventually take him over when this 90 year old man maybe we, dies at some point. Yeah. The reason it works so well and the reason it gets such plaudits is that it, it does the game of Thrones trick of balancing the humor with these really hefty emotional undertones that there's no good character in succession. There's no one who's like, Oh yeah, that's the good guy, but they're all so human and you understand where they're coming from and you feel for all of them, even when they do stuff, which is despicable sometimes. That's a really fine trick to pull off in a TV show of this caliber. And 
I don't think there's a show in the last half decade which has carried it off quite like Succession. And very excitedly, season four is in production right now. We don't have a date for it yet, but um, hopefully not too far in the distant future. We will have season four. So catch up and you'll be ready for season four of Succession. Can't wait. It's like kind of against my principles. Your principles? Craig, don't be an asshole. You don't have principles. Dude, ATN is a very toxic element in the culture. Seriously, okay, name me one principle that you have. I don't know, like, I'm against racism. Bullshit, I'm against racism. Everybody's against racism. What else? Like, don't lie. That's your principle? Yeah, dude. This week on Skip Intro, we discussed House of the Dragon, specifically episode two, which has just been released. We discussed the new HBO docu-series, The Last Movie Stars. Sam recommended that we check out Succession, which, of course, we can't recommend highly enough. All of these are streaming for you now on Binge or will be very soon. My name is John Bowen. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast was produced by Dan Barrett with audio editing and mixing by Chris Yates. And we'll be back next Monday for more House of the Dragon and more Skip Intro. Intro.